Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with Rachel Madel. What's going on, Rachel? Not much, Chris. I'm excited to be here, and we're going to talk a little bit about coaching today. <gasps> That's one of my favorite things. Yeah. So I want to talk about, we'll, we'll call it the the awkward side of coaching. <laughs> I was going to say the dark side, but I was like, nah, it's not the dark side. It's really just the awkward side of coaching. <laughs> so um, I've been having some coaching experiences. So I coach clinicians um, in my practice, both clinicians that work for me, but also people who just reach out to me and they're like, hey, I need some guidance. And I'm like, hey, I can help. Um, so I do private coaching calls with uh, clinicians. And um, I've been noticing a trend that sometimes it's a little awkward um, just because I think that it's, and we talk about this during our, our two-hour coaching course, Chris, that we do together. Um, you can't kind of just dive into coaching. It kind of like you have to build some foundational knowledge and you also have to build a good rapport with someone before you start kind of fully coaching. And so it's been it's been interesting because I think there's a lot of people who come into a coaching experience not knowing what to expect. Oftentimes they're coming in because they don't know what to do. So there's this like struggle that they're having uh, or some questions that they need to be answered. And I think there also comes this kind of preconceived notion that, oh, I'm on this call with Rachel, so she'll just answer all my questions and tell me exactly what to do. (laughs) And like, don't get me wrong, like, especially in my early years of coaching, that was what I did. (laughs) I was like, okay, here are your problems and I will solve them for you. But uh, what we know is that leaving someone to their own answers is a more effective strategy than just telling them what to do. But like, how do you do that in a way that's natural and not awkward? And so I've been trying to figure out like, how can I, how can I set up a situation to kind of build rapport, you know, quickly as as quickly as I can and try to avoid some of that awkwardness. And I think what I've landed on is sometimes no matter what you do, it's just going to be awkward. And that's okay. It's like you have to kind of sit in the silence and the awkwardness so that people can kind of get to the answers, right? And like, and and especially if the expectation is like, oh, Rachel's going to tell me all the answers. They're kind of surprised at first. Like, wait, why are they asking, why is she asking me questions? (laughs) And so, I don't know. It's been an interesting, like kind of stepping outside of, of the coaching that I do and thinking about the coaching that I do. It's been a really interesting kind of revelation that sometimes it's just a little uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I've experienced that awkwardness myself. And also on the coach's side, when people are first starting to coach, there's a little bit of awkwardness. I think we should be very explicit here that uh, because you and I are, have been talking about this for a while now, and we've mentioned it on the podcast, but in case people are just brand new listeners or, or, or what have you, the way you and I define coaching versus consulting is that coaching is asking more reflective questions, like you said, so people come to it, uh, come to conclusions on their own and have their own revelations. Where consulting is, hey Rachel, you're going to give me the answers, and you go, okay, I'll give you the answers, you know. And that's how we differentiate those two terms. Would that sound about right? That is a very important distinction because I think when most people think of coaching, they think of consulting, mm-hmm. right? Like especially in the context of AAC. It's like, oh yeah, like I'm going in doing parent coaching and telling parents exactly what they need to do with their child to get, you know, them using the device. And that is not what we're talking about here. So let's brainstorm for a little bit. Oh, I'm curious, why do you think this awkwardness exists in one clinicians that we work with? Let's start there with the clinicians that we work with. Like, 
why do they feel awkward during a coaching session? So I think it's partially because they came to me in a really vulnerable space that was, I don't know what I'm doing and I need help. Right. So that's always kind of a a place where you feel insecure. You feel very vulnerable. Um, Whereas parents sometimes come in and they're like, all right, what am I supposed to do? Um, It's not like they're feeling like I have no idea what to do. And I actually have like so little idea what to do that I actually need to help. I need your help. Um, It's really it's not always like that. Sometimes it is like that with parents. Um, But I think with clinicians, they have this idea that I'm supposed to know what to do. And I don't know what to do. And so I feel like maybe I'm not a good clinician because I don't know what to do. And so it's kind of like that, like feedback loop, I think, in a clinician's brain leads them to feeling very insecure when they're talking with me about, you know, whatever it is that their problems are, or the questions that they have. And I think the reason that exists in the first place is because from kindergarten through the end of grad school, the way the educational experiences they've 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 had their experience has been learn information give that information back to show that i know that information and then do that over and over and over again as opposed to being in an environment where i can know that i have the skills to tackle these open ended questions you know much of school i think for me and i bet a lot of people was very closed ended you know memorize the content spit it back out and then maybe apply it sometimes maybe you know that's sort of clinical practice a little bit but again clinical practice was is often in the same vein where it's like okay now do this thing and do what i tell you as the clinical supervisor. And when you don't know, I'll tell you what to do. You know, it's mostly that consulting model. So I feel like there's going to be a lot more awkwardness that we're going to have to go through. And it's becoming changing the system from the get go. And I think that could change at grad school, because I know there's a lot of professors that listen to this podcast is saying, hmm, okay, how would I set up these open ended experiences? So the students that I support, leave my program feeling like they can tackle they, it's okay not to know, you know, no one's going to criticize you or be like, um, oh, you only got a 95 on that test you know uh, it, instead it's like hey go out there and and search for questions and find seek the truth you know um and it's okay that you don't know because then the awkwardness goes away you know it's like hey we're all in this boat together we're not sure we're figuring it out um and it's okay i can admit that i don't know i can admit that i only got an 87 on the test um and i don't have to feel shame about that because you know what i'm i'm on this journey of learning more and growing more and it's okay to ask questions and it's okay to doubt myself like that's the mindset we need people coming into the profession with as opposed to hey i was supposed to know it all and learn it because i spent thousands of dollars to learn it you know yeah and i think what you're kind of talking or speaking to Chris is growth mindset right and we had Gemma White on the podcast who's also a Patreon member she popped into our our talking with tech live um, and I was like Gemma like so nice to see you Um, but anyway I think it goes back to this idea of growth mindset how can we not only you know foster that in the students that we work with but also within ourselves because like you said Chris we've all I think had a very different education experience um, than perhaps our students now are experiencing Um, and it was very much like very rigid as far as memorizing regurgitating 
thing and it was like there was a right and a wrong and you know you had a percentage on a test and I just think it's 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 obviously more gray than that and again like kind of going back to fostering that growth mindset in students um, but also kind of looking at ourselves and thinking through that lens as well like we're on a journey and we don't need to know all the answers but you know we have the skills to find the answers and that's enough Um, I think that that's like something that's really important to remember whenever it is that you're, you know, stepping into perhaps a new area of our field. So maybe you're listening right now and you're not, you know, in the AAC sphere, or you're not an AAC specialist for your district, but you're really interested in it and you're, you know, trying to move forward. I think a lot of people just get stuck because they feel like they don't know enough and it's just, it's all in their head, right? It's all this like limiting beliefs in their head that prevent them from moving forward. And so just remembering that you have the tools to find the answers that you don't know. And it's okay not to know. Um, I think that's the the biggest thing. It's okay not to know. Let's say that with 10 more times. Literally, <laughs> It's I okay know. not to know. Uh, it's not okay not to do anything about it, but it's certainly okay not to know. Uh, especially here in this day and age where, oh man, you don't need to know the facts straight off the top of your head on the tip of your tongue. Like, Rachel, tell me the 12 cranial nerves. Do you know what I mean? Like, you don't need to know that. You need to know how to find it. You need to know what they do um, if if there's some sort of problem, do you know? Uh, But spitting out that stuff, how helpful is that? I have to share a story about the cranial nerves. Um, For whatever reason, I had such a hard time with the cranial nerves, like just remembering which one goes with which and all those things. So when I took my comprehensive exams and uh, my board exams, I literally was like, okay, game time decision. I'm not studying the cranial nerves. I'm going to study everything else. And so the cranial nerves, I'm just going to guess on. Because I just couldn't like it just it was too much brain space. And I was like, okay, let's be efficient. Let's maximize my time. I'm not going to worry about the cranial nerves. Um, So anyway, I still don't know my cranial nerves very well. What would be such a better test question there would be, hey, so you don't know about the cranial nerves. How are you going to learn about them? You know, where could you what are some resources you could use to find about find out about cranial nerves or, you know, something related to an authentic problem that somebody's having where the cranial nerves would be part of the answer, that would be a much better experience than just memorize them, spit them out, forget them. And all you'll ever remember is how uh, how you didn't feel great about that learning experience. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely didn't feel great about that learning experience. I was like, oh, my God, I'm the only SLP in my program who doesn't know her cranial nerves. (laughs) I probably wasn't, but (laughs) I definitely thought I was. The takeaway message from this conversation is that coaching is going to be awkward for a lot of people because of that sort of closed ended. I thought I was supposed to know everything. And if I don't, I'm going to it's going to come off as weakness. And what we're trying to say is that's baloney and embrace that you don't know it. (laughs) Um, Embrace the fact that you are taking the initiative to find out more and learn skills that you don't currently have and that a coach can help you get there. A coach that is that is asking you reflective questions can bring it out within you and, and provide summary statements can help bring that out within you. And that's that's awesome. Yeah. And I think you, you, you said it, Chris, 
we need to ask more questions. That's a really easy way to get started. Just ask more questions, both with the families that you work with. If you're a clinical supervisor, um, asking your students more questions instead of jumping in. We so often just jump in to give the answer without just pausing and asking those questions. You know, so when a, when a student comes to me and asks a question, my first question typically is, well, what do you think? Right. And so then it empowers them. Um, and then you can point out the, the areas where it's like, yes, you're on the right track here. Absolutely. Did you ever think about this? Instead of me being like, here's my answer. It's like, okay, let's build off of what they said. And while you're doing that, you're reinforcing all of the positive things that they've said, right? So they feel good. Like, okay, I got, I got part of this. Like I'm on the right track. Instead of this like right or wrong. Because if someone asks me a question and my answer is different than what they thought it might be, then they all of a sudden think they're wrong. And so it's really important to just ask those questions and then you kind of can come together with two solutions. So that's something that's very easy that can you can start doing right away. Absolutely. You know, even if you generated a list of questions and kept them with you, especially in distance learning, where you can kind of have that sheet up right next to you and you can pull on those questions. Um, and in fact, we, we put some of those in slides that we share in our coaching course, you know, when we say, you know, here, take these slides, Print them out, rehandwrite them, take a screenshot of them and put them next to your computer so you can ask those reflective questions and draw from them when you need to. Absolutely. Well, Chris, I love coaching. You know, we can talk about it all day and I think it's important for us to talk about it. So we're going to keep talking about it on the podcast. Yeah, but I don't want to. It's so awkward, Rachel. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to pause and it's going to get even more awkward, but then you're going to come out the other side and it's going to be so much better. All right. Well, you're the expert. So since you told me what to do, I will... <laughs> Oh, I love it. Okay. So what we're about to listen to is, what is it, Chris? It's our, our digital storytelling. It's a training that we did a long time ago, but it's been sitting here and we, we need to share it with everybody. And it's something that we're really passionate about, Chris. Like how can we foster literacy? How can we help, you know, kids facilitate more communication using stories um, and using digital storytelling tools? Um, so that's part one that you're about to listen to. And I'm really excited that we're finally able to share it. Me too. So without further ado, here's part one of Digital Storytelling. We're excited to remind everyone about one of our favorite events of the year, the annual ATIA Conference. ATIA stands for the Assistive Technology Industry Association, and like so many events, this year the conference will be held online. The ATIA team has designed the conference in a way that provides attendees more opportunities for flexible scheduling and different registration options. It's going to be awesome. The conference, called ATIA 2021 AT Connected, will be held online January 25th through 28th and February 1st through 4th. The conference will feature the same professional development opportunities we've all come to rely on from ATIA, including an education strand dedicated to AAC, along with CEUs available on more than 150 courses. Plus, there's a ton of flexible scheduling options, so you can attend some sessions live and catch up on others that were recorded. These recordings will be available through June of 2021, so you'll have plenty of time to watch them. This year, there's also a range of registration options, including full conference, single strand, one day, and even a free option. With all of this flexibility and a free registration option, there's absolutely no reason not to attend.
Chris and I will be there too. We're leading the course called Designing and Delivering Empowering Experiences to Teach Language Using AAC. This six-hour course is a virtual seminar held over two Saturdays, January 30th and February 6th, both starting at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 Eastern. We've put together an experience that allows you to take a deep dive into AAC. You can register by going to bit.ly backslash TWTATIA21. It's a great example of one of the flexible options you have for ATIA 2021. You can pick and choose the sessions and schedules that work best for you, and you can even take an intensive course like our virtual seminar to really hone in on a topic that matters most to you. And that's not all. Guess what? Talking with Tech listeners can get a special discount when registering for this conference. To get 20% off the full conference registration, go to ataa.org backslash talking with tech and enter the discount code ATIA21VISION, all caps. So head on over to ataa.org slash talking with tech and enter the registration code ATIA2001VISION today. See you at ATIA. And welcome, everyone. I'm Mayling Chan. I'm CEO of Exceptional Ed, and I also have a podcast, the Exceptional Leaders Podcast, welcoming you to the AAC After Work 2019 conference. So thank you for joining us. All right. So we want to welcome tonight is Rachel Madel and Chris Bouguet. They are hosts of the Talking With Tech podcast, and they are also both prolific in their professional expertise, um, working with students and then also doing things on a professional level in terms of presentations and so many more things. So Welcome, guys. I'm going to let you guys take over the screen share now. I'm Rachel Madel, and as Mei Ling said, Chris and I host Talking With Tech, which is an AAC-focused podcast. Um, I also present on AAC and technology. I do a lot of work with AAC. I have a private practice in Los Angeles. I'm from Pennsylvania, though, um, and I miss it dearly, especially in the fall. I do have some disclosures that I need to go over. I am the owner of my practice. I also have a blog where we sell online resources. Of course, I have a podcast with Chris where we receive revenue um, as far as advertising. Um, I also receive honorariums to do speaking engagements. My non-financial disclosures, I'm a member of ASHA, SIG-12, CASHA, which is California Speech and Hearing Associations. Um, and then I also have done some app consulting uh, with EQtainment and uh, Pixie Pal. And you can see all the, the ways that you can connect with me. I am on Instagram and Facebook, of course, the podcast, and my website is rachelmadel.com. All right. So my name is Chris Bouguet, and I am an, an assistive technology person. Uh, I also am a speech language pathologist, but about uh, three years into my career, uh, I was asked to be on the assistive technology team for my school district, and uh, I've never looked back. I'm still working on that assistive technology team. So I like to think of myself as an assistive technology person with a speech background as opposed to a speech person that works in assistive technology. Uh, I also have some disclosures. Uh, there's a whole website that has a list of all the disclosures that I have because I'm old, so I have lots of stuff. Um, but I've got to uh, produce an app with uh, Barbara Fernandez from Smarty Years called AT About to Go. I've got to write a couple books. And the most recent book is called The New Assess of Tech, Make Learning Awesome for All. Um, yeah, there's a link to my disclosures at uh, bit.ly, CB disclosures. You don't have to go to it now. Just know that it's there. Uh, 
because and know that all of the, the the tools that we're going to show today, none of them we're getting funded. No one's paying us to show these tools. And I think that's it. Like, like I said, we do the, the the podcast together, and we wanted to say kind of right up front that. Uh, there are some webinars, there are some presentations that are perfectly timed and they fit slightly right into this hour time slot and that, that, that goes from start to finish and every minute is accounted for. And that is not one of these presentations. Uh, Rachel and I know that we will not get to all the tools that we want to show you, not to get, we won't get to all the strategies we want to show you. It's designed to be that way because we do a podcast and we're hoping to entice you, entice you to come listen to our podcast that uh, you'll, you'll get tons of good information even if you don't go listen to the podcast, but think of it that there will likely be a part two and maybe even a part three, depending on, on how far we get today, that you can go and follow up with us by listening to the podcast episodes, which again, we, we put out for free. So uh, and we're part of the Exceptional, Exceptional Ed Network. Um, and we, you can just go listen to that by downloading on your favorite pod, pod catcher app. And it's also worth noting that um, all of these tools that we uh, have and we'll talk about are all linked. So definitely be sure to check out the slides because you'll have links to all of the resources that we talk about. Like Chris said, we're not going to be able to talk about all of them individually. Um, so definitely get uh, the link. Did you put the link in the chat, Chris? The link is in the chat, everybody. If you didn't get it, go ahead and go in chat. I didn't get it, Chris. And I'll just copy and paste it again. But it's right there. I, I can see it right there on the screen. <laughs> okay, so let's get this out of the way too. We need to talk about privacy because we're gonna be talking all about tools that we can utilize to help facilitate communication. Some of them, you know, encourage photos and videos of children, um, you know, that you're working with. So of course, we always have to obtain written permission from parents and guardians before taking videos and photos of a child. Um, you know, if you work in a school, I work in private practice, it doesn't matter, we need permission. Um, of course, you know, if you're gonna communicate about a child in, within a team, um, you know, getting written permission for that as well. And a lot of um, the ways that we're gonna be sharing today, um, you could potentially password protect. Um, so just FYI, you know, we wanna make sure everyone's secure and getting permission. Okay, let's dive right in. Let's talk a little bit about core vocabulary because it's kind of the crux of what we're going to be talking about today as far as digital storytelling. Core words make up 80% of what you or I say. Um, there are all different kinds of parts of speech, uh, adjectives and prepositions and verbs. Um, you know, so it's really important when we're thinking about vocabulary that we're thinking through the lens of core word vocabulary because that's truly what gives children the tools to create spontaneous and novel utterances. Um, and then of course there's fringe vocabulary. Fringe makes up about 20%. Um, it's all of the things, it's all of the nouns. Um, and you can see I give some examples here. Um, these are things that actually all of the kids that I work with uh, really enjoy. Uh, pipe cleaners, cheese puffs, swing, balloon, all these things. Um, so I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with core vocabulary, um, but I just wanted to go over that briefly so that um, you know when we talk about it through the lens of the rest of the presentation, everyone understands what we're talking about. There's actually a third sort. So those are the kind of two big things. If you work in the field of AAC at all, you've heard of those two terms, core vocabulary and fringe vocabulary. If you're new, welcome. Well, this is your first foray into it. Uh, and you often hear of those two, but there's a, a third that is um, 
should also be talked about, and that is something known as key vocabulary or personal fringe. Um, one of our podcast episodes, we talked to a person named Russell Cross, and so there's a link there. It says listen to learn. You can click right on that link later, not now, and it'll take you to that podcast episode where we describe it more in detail rather than what I, we're, we're doing the few minutes to talk about it rather than the uh, uh, you know 45-minute talk about it. You can listen to the podcast and get that. But the idea about key vocabulary or personal fringe vocabulary is the idea that there are certain words that uh, are more personal or used because uh, more frequently based on who you are, uh, based on where you live, based on the time of year. You know, like my wife right now says pumpkin spice a heck of a lot more than she ever says pumpkin spice throughout the rest of the year, right? Because in our neck of the woods, where we are, where we live, it's fall and pumpkin spice, everything just came out. And so she says the words pumpkin and spice and puts those together way more frequently than than other times of the year. You can imagine there's the picture of, of my little bitmoji there of me as Santa Claus, because when, when Christmas time rolls around and holiday season comes around, words like reindeer and Santa become more frequently used than other times of the year. Based on your location, you might have certain words that you say more frequently, uh, like soda or pop, or like, for instance, a very uh, a real one, right, is hurricane. Uh, depending on where you live, the word hurricane, you might use that way more frequently than if you lived in, let's say, you know, Montana. It's not saying the word hurricane as frequently. Or another example is our family dog. Uh, your family dog might be a name like Spot or Rex or whatever it might be. You, to that child, to that individual, you're going to say that word much more frequently than someone who doesn't have a dog that name. So uh, it's, a, it's a less known term that we talk about, but it is just as, as important because sometimes these are the words that uh, hook a student in helping them learn um, that the power of an, of an AAC tool. Yeah, and these are ones that are really highly motivating oftentimes. Um, so they're, that's why they're kind of key, personal fringe, personal core, like all the things because they're high frequency, just like Chris mentioned. Okay, because I have a platform for a public service announcement, <laughs> let's talk about something that's very near and dear to both Chris and I. Um, we need to get kids beyond just requesting. Um, we use language for so many purposes beyond just our basic wants and needs. And so it's important to show children how to utilize language for other purposes. The number one thing I get from parents who call me is they're only using language to get what they want and that's it. That, that's where it starts and ends. And it's because oftentimes that we haven't shown children how to use language to comment, um, how to tell a joke, how to initiate conversation, um, how to protest. That's another one that's really motivating for children. Um, children with complex communication needs, they're oftentimes being told all day long what to do. They don't have a lot of control. And so being able to protest and say like, no, I don't wanna do this or stop, or I wanna be all done. Um, also, you know, kind of in the same um, respect, directing the actions of others, being able to tell somebody else what to do. They're so used to being told what to do, you know, we can kind of shift the table for them. Um, and these are all very motivating things for, for, you know, learners of AAC. And so it's just important to, you know, take note, you know, and these aren't even all of them. Um, these are some of my favorites. And you can see my bitmoji that says lit. Um, then let's use slang. You know, this is how kids talk. 
So we need to make kids, um, you know, sound like their peers and it's, it's super motivating for students um, when they can have that peer acceptance. And so, you know, it's our job uh, as clinicians and teachers um, and parents to show children how to use language beyond just requesting. Rachel, I want to jump in here and just as a, as a little teaser, we're going to talk about digital storytelling. And when you're telling stories, these it's not just about requesting, right? It's one of the reasons we like digital storytelling or storytelling in general is that it, you get to all the pragmatic functions. And if you're writing about characters, they are often using those different pragmatic functions. So it's, a, it's sort of a natural fit. Yep. So uh, one of the strategies we use quite frequently when working with kids who are getting them to use their augmentative communication device is something called the prompt hierarchy. And so we're kind of running through a bunch of our favorite strategies here in, in, in pretense for the digital storytelling that we're going to talk about and the different tools for digital storytelling. But oftentimes when you're reading a book with a student or you're writing a book with a student, uh, one of our biggest strategies is for us, the, the adults, to use the communication device and then sort of hint or offer to the student that they too would use the communication device. And so uh, how do you prompt them through that? Well, so often we find that people ha do it kind of haphazardly. You know, sometimes you might offer the device and just kind of use your hands like this. And other times you're like, okay, your turn. Uh, hey, what do you think is going to happen next? And you're jumping all over the place. And I find myself doing it is that I, I'm prompting in not any sort of pattern. So if you use this something called the prompting hierarchy, it's a way of training yourself to prompt a student in a way where you're, you're doing from a least to most prompts. So uh, the least prompt might be just kind of doing that expectant wait. And then suddenly he, he or she might jump in because you've given enough wait time. Uh, and if they don't do that, then you, you might go to the next prompt, which would be like, and just giving a, sh a shrug uh, or, or a nod. And we can, I'm not going to go through all of them here because it's a whole nother talk. But uh, you can see that you go from something very least to the most, which might be actually pointing to the thing and being like, or modeling on a student's device them yourself and saying, this is what I want you to say. Uh, and you go up through that. Love it. Okay. Our goal with all of our communicators is always SNUG. And it stands for Spontaneous Novel Utterance Generation. And basically that just means you know, allowing individuals to say whatever they want to say, whenever they want to say it. Um, and, you know, this is another another public service announcement for literacy and how important it is to teach kids, um, you know, how to type, how to read, because that's truly what unlocks uh, snug. Um, and it should be what we're always trying to strive towards when it comes to, and it says on here, be careful of quick fire and uh, scripts, um, you know, because we need to teach children the foundational skills to build spontaneous language. Um, of course, sometimes social phrases are very relevant. You know, I need to go to the bathroom. That's a perfect one to program into a device, but we really want to give kids the building blocks so that they can, you know, create novel utterances uh, because we can only teach a child so many scripts, right? We can't program scripts for an, a child or individual's entire life. And so it's really important that we set that foundation um, and being careful about the words that we're targeting and how we're utilizing um, the language. 
Also super important for digital, digital storytelling and reading and literacy because so often you're reading words and you're reading sentences that have never been put in that order. To, you're reading words put in sentences that have never been put in that order before and might never be put in that word, word order again. And that's, that's really what the heart of the spontaneous novel utterances is that, well, at least the novel utterances, uh, spontaneous means it comes off the top of your head, but when you're reading it, you're showing the students all the different ways words can be used in different orders. Love it. Yeah. Um, so when you're working with an AAC device and you're working with a student that's using an AAC tool, uh, you have to think of yourself as a communication partner. You're, you're, you're the one that's, that you're having an exchange with the student. Um, and uh, oftentimes, uh, us as a speech therapist that might be going into to help in a classroom can think of our job as, uh, well, okay, I'm gonna do direct instruction with the student, right? Um, but what if we thought of our job as actually coaching the communication partner and our work is shifted slightly from working directly with the student, but working with the uh, other people that are working with the student, including the peers. Um, and so when you're doing that, you think of yourself more of a, as a coach rather than telling people what to do. You might ask them what to do. You guide them through, okay, so, hey, I saw you reading this book with the student. Um, how, did that, how did that work? What, what kind of feedback would you take from that session? Uh, what do you think would happen if we um, read the words a little bit slower? What do you think would happen if um, you sat on the other side? What do you think would happen if we used a picture book rather than an iPad or an iPad instead of a picture book? Those sorts of questions getting people thinking about, yeah, what would happen if you, you know, we printed out that prompt hierarchy and maybe you tried to follow it as you were prompting through it? Those sorts of things are, are you being a coach for the, uh, for the other people working with the AAC user. And it's really a shift, I think, in our field, uh, uh, not just uh, speech language pathology, but, but really working with kids is thinking of uh, working with other adults, not just with direct services, but in a coaching mentality. And we're really careful to not say training, right? Chris and I are very, you know, aware of that language because training implies like, I'm the expert and I need to teach you everything I know. Whereas coaching, you know, it's a very different feel. Um, and that's really what we're going after. We're going after, you know, how can we help guide adults to help, you know, facilitate communication? Um, and just thinking through the lens of the digital storytelling, you know, what I would encourage everyone to do after this presentation is to think about, you know, how can I use one of these apps or tools in a classroom setting and show a teacher, maybe do a language lesson and show a teacher, you know, how you might facilitate language, um, you know, in a group setting so that the teacher is able to then, you know, think through that lens, see you do it and then emulate that in a lot of ways. Um, and that's something that you know, is, is, is huge because think about all the kids that that can impact positively instead of just the kind of one-on-one -on -one model. So we've, we've mentioned it before. We're going to mention it again that uh, maybe the, one of the most important strategies to use with students, and it's probably the, the thing that happens the least, is so what happens so frequently is we get an AEC device, we plop it in front of a student, and then we wonder why they don't use it. Uh, geez, they never use that thing. Well, what a lot of research points to is that we, the, the people surrounding the student, must show them how to use it and use the language on it and actually use the device. And so that's what this this slide is meant to say is it's uh, it, we're to model on the device by showing um, uh, the use of it. Rachel? 
Sorry, Chris, I skipped ahead. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so when we're modeling, one of the benefits of modeling is that we get to see words used in different ways. So uh, here we're using the, the word do, right? If you look at those images, there's a me saying do it, me saying don't. These are bitmojis of me. Me saying do you like me? Look at all the different ways the word do is used in just in those little bitmojis, right? Another example is the word on. Like, can you picture a little picture symbol of the word on? But how, when you put on with other words, it means so much, uh, so many other different meanings, like turn it on. Um, I could go on and on. Um, it, I'm on time. What does that mean, on time? Are you putting something literally on top of something, on a clock? What? Like, so how do kids learn all these little variations in what words mean? They learn it by us showing them, to, by, by using them on the communication device. Love it. I heard a phrasal verb, Chris. It's <laughs> <laughs> a whole nother talk. Okay, so we already talked about the prompting hierarchy, but it's important to punctuate this. We need to pause more. <laughs> and I need to tell myself this, and I know, I know better, right? I, I teach this to people, but it's really important that we give children enough space to formulate their own thoughts. And sometimes this takes, you know, 10, 15, sometimes 20 seconds after you, you know, show a student something or ask them a question. And it's just so important that we are really giving children wait time because otherwise we don't know what they're capable of. Um, you know, if we don't give them the space, we can't see what comes out of them spontaneously. And that's always my goal, you know, is to, especially if I know motivation's really high, it's like, okay, like I'm gonna tempt, I'm gonna sabotage, I'm gonna do all of these things and then I'm gonna wait. And I'm going to wait way longer than I think I need to, because that's when you can see what children are, are truly capable of. Um, another strategy is just expansion. Thinking about, you know, taking where a child's at and what they're saying on their own spontaneously and just always leveling up, going up just an, another step. Chris, you never, you, you explained this on the podcast so well, thinking about yourself, you know, on a staircase. When you're teaching a child how to walk up the stairs, you're not at the top, you know, saying, come on, let's go. You're one step ahead of them, you know, making sure that they're okay, um, guiding them up. And it's the same thing with language, just, you know, modeling one step ahead so that they're constantly getting exposure to different kinds of language. Um, and, you know, we're showing them this is where you're going next. If you're saying on, we're going to say turn on, you know, and so really thinking about, you know, that, that next level, because that's what's going to you know, encourage children to keep expanding their own language. And Rachel, I think another point there about the expansion is, again, tying it to digital storytelling. We're about to show you a bunch of tools to create digital stories. Well, when you're typing words into these uh, tools that will create the stories, you could be thinking, well, if the student's at kind of a two-word level, then maybe I'm going to put like a three or four words in, uh, in the book. And of course, you can always use books that have longer text. But if you're creating your own, you could be really targeting, okay, where's the, the language level of the student and how can I, how can I expand? and one sentence or one word up. Yep. Oh, okay. So the, the maybe the, one of the last strategies here to talk about before we get into the some of the tools is um, that when students use the, their communication device, sometimes it can, it, it, some people might think of it as stimming. Oh, students just go over here and they're just kind of stimming on this device. But what if we uh, attributed meaning no matter what they were doing? Oh, you didn't really mean to push the word salad. You meant this other thing. Well, what if you took whatever word they, they used and, and then you attributed meaning to that 
uh, with the assumption that that was purposeful. They were trying to communicate something, and that's how they learn what those words are. You know, um, the strategy here that I like to think of is um, yes and. Uh, so if you've ever done improv or seen any of those improv shows, improv is, and this is totally a different thing, not really AAC, right? It's just uh, improv is a, a rule that people who learn about improv have is yes and. You have two people on a stage and the person kicks off the improv uh, activity and the next person has to take what that first person did and they have to say yes to it and, and they add to it. Um, and that's sort of what the same thing here is that if a kid starts to say something on a device, it, interpret that as they were, they meant to say that thing on the device and then add to it. Now, going back to that expansion strategy. One last little story here, Rachel. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, tell your story, Chris. Well, I was just working. I get to do some training and coaching in my, in my day job. And we were in a session and this teacher was saying how she thought the student at first was stimming on his device. And he went over and he pressed he, and he pressed he, and he pressed he, and he pressed he. And at first she thought this was stimming, but what he was really doing was, anyone in the chat, what was he doing when he's pressing he, 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 He's laughing. Exactly. Everyone's typing and laughing. Right. Exactly. He's laughing. Right. And so, but it can really be easy for people to go, oh, let me take that away. Yeah. Or, 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 or try to uh, stop that behavior when really we're misinterpreting it. So lead with whatever they say on the device. That's what they meant to say. And I also think it's relevant through the lens of storytelling because when you, you know, show a student a picture or something and you're asking them to formulate a story, if it feels unrelated or not right, we could very easily, you know, say, oh, no, no, you didn't mean to say that. Look, it's a picture of a castle. But I really would encourage just take what the student says and then figure out a way to attribute meaning to it. Because um, again, like Chris said, that's how children learn. And so, you know, and I have to remind myself of this. It's like the same thing where you see like a child, you know, putting all the, they're, they're doing an arts and craft activity and they're like putting the eyes in the wrong place. And I just like the OCD in me is like, ah, like, can I please help you? <laughs> you know, but it's really important to just take a step back and um, really, you know, celebrate what a child is communicating with you. So one way to think about organizing your week is, um, we, again, we have sort of a, a podcast episode here with our friend Eric Enger, who talks about this. And it's just a one way. There's lots of different ways to organize your week. But so this is really just a sample uh, or a thought for you to, to think about. It's not, it's not a prescription saying you should follow this, this. It's just to get your mind thinking about, okay, how am I going to organize my week? Well, you might organize your week around some words that you want to teach. And those go back to the, maybe that core vocabulary word or maybe the key vocabulary, but most likely the core vocabulary words like uh, stop and go, up and down, in and out. Um, you might practice those words and you might plan lessons around, okay, how am I going to expose students to those words uh, throughout the week? And a way to think of that might be, well, well, on Monday, as I'm introducing a new word that we haven't practiced before, I know I'm going to have to model heavily. I mean, I'm going to have to model heavily all the time. But uh, I, I certainly shouldn't expect that they might know what these words mean if I haven't modeled or taught them that. So you might think of Monday as Model Monday. And it really gets the other people in the room thinking about, like the paraprofessionals, um, thinking, yeah, right? I mean, we haven't introduced this word yet. How are they going to know it? I guess I have to model it. Um, and there's nice alliteration, Model Monday. 
Literacy Tuesday, but really literacy can be built in every day. It's just a hyper focus on Tuesday to have even more literacy activities. Wacky Wednesday, this is the day you do all sorts of, you come in with paint on your face or dressed in an outfit or something crazy happens that day. Friday, Thursday can be math day, where again, you could do math every day, but maybe there's, this is the time you do extra math or you have a, a more focus on math. And then Friday, okay, what's all the fringe vocabulary that we can tie together with our, uh, with the word of the, the words of the week. Um, and it doesn't have to be organized this way. I want to be clear. It's just one way to think about it. Somehow, though, you have to think about, okay, what words are we teaching? And then we'll be thinking about how do we put them into books and how do we select books that have those words in them? Love it. Okay, let's just briefly go over, because um, we're going to be talking about some apps. And um, I just like to talk through how you can use apps to support communication. And so, you know, when we're thinking about app play and screen time, Obviously, it's very motivating, but it's important that we're not just planting a device in a child's lap and, you know, walking away, obviously. So co-viewing and joint media engagement, fancy terms for just saying, like, you're going to be with a student talking to them during the app play. Um, same thing, maintaining the control of the device. And so, you know, if you, we all know, if you put a device in front of a child and they start hitting all the buttons, they're not engaged with you anymore. They're engaged with the screen. Um, and so, you know, the strategies we're gonna be talking about today is how can you maintain that engagement while you're using an app um, to support communication. I like to use the, the phrase, use your words, not your hands, because oftentimes what I'm doing is I'm holding an iPad up and I'm having a child direct what's happening. So, you know, for, you know, figuring out how to put dress a character up. I'm like, oh, you know, what do you want me to put on next? Um, and using that core vocabulary and ha having a child communicate what they want to see happen. Um, and there's lots of different ways that you can use this. Um, same thing, flipping the device over. So if you're, say, watching, uh, you know, a short video clip, which we'll talk about animated shorts in a little bit, you know, flipping the device over and then saying, you know, what just happened or what's going to happen next? You know, so it's really important just flipping the device over because sometimes kids get like in a trance, they're like staring at a screen. Um, and so I'll just put the screen behind my back or turn it over um, as a way to just reconnect with the child and encourage communication. Um, same thing, don't be afraid to mute. Um, it's so awesome watching some of these videos, um, but sometimes music and loud noises and dialogue and things like that are very distracting. And so being able to mute it, pause it, rewind, rewatch, all these are really great strategies to utilize. Um, I al also like to talk about apps. Um, the best apps are the ones that parallel a real world experience, because obviously that's what we want, right? We want to teach children how to communicate in their, you know, everyday routines. And so there's a lot of really great apps out there, you know, my play home and all these things where you can really mimic a child's experience and children are motivated by it. Um, and, you know, the hope is that that's going to generalize to more spontaneous language in their everyday lives. Create stuff, Chris. <laughs> yes, yes, and create stuff. So uh, there's a lot of talk about the term screen time, right? And we're about to show you a bunch of apps that are on screens, right? And we like to promote the idea that it's not really about the screen time. And again, Rachel, feel if, if I, I don't mean to talk for you here. Um, 
but uh, I know just my own kids. Let's just I'll talk my own personal kids. Um, we do a lot of screen time, but we're together doing it, right? Uh, there's a lot of conversation, a lot of communication. We're not staring at it and not doing anything but staring at our screens. We're making stuff together. We're in Minecraft together and we're building things. We're making movies together on our screens. We're, we're making uh, storybooks and we're making uh, uh, images we're, we're adding things there's there's and there's all this creativity there's all this communication it's all about being together in the moment which and all those great strategies that you share rachel beforehand promote that togetherness it's not about um uh just absorbing content <laughs>